Welcome to Arcanex Sessions, episode 66. I'm Amelia, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Donna and Ken, and this week we're joined by Andrea Dietz to discuss her coverage of the Venice Biennale opening. So Andrea, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Thanks for having me. So one of the things that I think would be a good idea, and Donna was mentioning, would be also be a good idea for listeners to kind of, before we delve deep into your impressions of Venice, why don't we get a bit situated in how the exhibitions were actually laid out and the overall structure for the Biennale. So can you tell us how the event was structured between Aravena's work and the National Pavilions and the other exhibitions going on? Sure. So everything is situated between two main sites. One is at the Arsenale and the other is at the Giardini. And their locations are on the eastern side of the Venice Islands. The Giardini is a very large garden space and there are national pavilions that are kind of freestanding permanent structures that scattered around that site. And then there's also a central pavilion there where Aravena's main works are housed. Then the Arsenale is more of a kind of old factory building or shipyard building that's long and linear and takes a couple of zigs and zags as it moves across its site on the water. And there are a series of Aravena's curated projects in there. And then each of the national sites has a, a building space in there. Plus there's a couple of the special projects at the Arsenale. And there's a bunch of scattered projects around the island. And this was your first visit to the Biennale. Was it also your first visit to Venice? First visit to the Biennale, I had been to Venice as a young 20-something, just for fun. So what was the ambience like just coming in there? Was it completely overwhelming or um, was it clearly organized? What was it like first navigating the space? It was totally overwhelming, not through any fault of theirs, but just because there's so, so much information and so many things to see. So it was it was much to get into. Yeah. And so, of course, now we're also kind of sorting through your sorting throughs as we're seeing the dispatches you've been publishing and coming out from Venice, which have been really fascinating to see that just the sheer, <laughs> yeah, the sheer volume <laughs> um, of all that is there and how any attempt at actually kind of distilling it into some type of cohesive item or curatorial project is certainly impossible. But why don't we kind of delve into the specifics a little bit more then? What were some of the, let's start with, say, the national pavilions. What were some of the national pavilions that stood out in your memory? My, my favorite at this point still is probably the Uruguayan pavilion, primarily because they were so innovative and in taking on some pretty extreme challenges, namely next to no budget. And they were very kind of playful and pleasant about the whole thing. They had a kind of scheme where the first thing that you see are these newspaper articles that are being released that are talking about a hole that's been dug in the center of their pavilion and it's discovered to be a tunnel and the police that are in Venice are trying to figure out what's going on and basically they're implicating that it's being used as a smuggling tunnel and the rest of the sites around the, the Giardini are being kind of commandeered by different people around the site and Elements from those pavilions are supposedly being co-opted and taken back to the Uruguayan pavilion, or people can actually volunteer to leave things behind. And then all of those things are supposed to accumulate and then go back to Montevideo in Uruguay and take the Biennale, in a sense, back to Uruguay. So I thought that was a lot of fun. Andrea, did you actually see anything being accumulated in there? Were people doing it? Did you have to go back to that pavilion several times over the course of the days you were there to, to see if things were were coming in? There were def definitely things coming in. I think most of it, really? yeah, I, I think most of it was people volunteering objects just because it oh, was okay. a lot of fun. Um, <laughs> they had a, a, a room off to the side where they were kind of tagging and classifying all of the different things that were coming in and being collected. They also gave cool. out um, these kind of 
cloak poncho things that were supposed to make you invisible as you went around and co-opted things around the site, which was which was pretty funny. It seemed like a really a really sort of subversive one in a way, and also to make a, a commentary about globalism and and borrowing of ideas from other cultures that's just rampant right now. So I, yeah, that one that one seemed amazing to me. I'm glad that you uh, you were able to visit it and talk about it. Yeah. It definitely had a degree of kind of tongue in cheek. And also, you note that, yes, they had a very limited budget. But had we not known exactly what their budget was, it has certainly kind of a vibe of almost, you know, giving a bit of the middle finger to the other kind of more <laughs> polished, I'd say, pavilions. And I also think you, you also cover a little bit of the special project that the Victoria and Albert Museum did, yes. um, the World of Fragile Parts. And I think that exhibition in comparison with the Uruguayan one is really fascinating because, uh, like, like Donna just said, they're both kind of delving in the complexities and the fraughtness of collecting any type of like global emblems and that kind of museum culture. But one is it doing it in a very, you know, what sounds like a fun, <laughs> mm-hmm. kind of fun poking way, a satirical way. And the other one is, you know, from this very hallowed institution that is trying to really study what it means the fa- to uh, have this collection that, they, that they've accumulated over centuries of imperialism, <laughs> basically. Yeah, no, I, I thought that that one was a, a very powerful kind of statement amidst all of it, because it is very much a historicist perspective and everything kind of pushes to the background when you look at things with the scales of time. So all of the concerns of the kind of call seem to sort of dissipate in in that one move. That's actually also what came up with the Uruguayan Pavilion is I'm wondering, did people, did you find it was clearly echoing or referencing Aravena's call in the actual proposal for the Biennale? Or was it more of a kind of an alternative take on whatever it was going to do anyway? Well, as I was talking to the different pavilion curators, I realized that everyone got started in a different time frame. So some of the people were directly responding to the call and had compressed the amount of effort into a short period. And then others they were just going with whatever had been set up in advance. So it sort of is contingent on whoever you're talking to at the time, but they all kind of seemingly had some dialogue with that original call, at least. Hmm. So you were saying the Uruguayan one was indeed kind of thought of before the actual call came out. That's really fascinating because I think that's so easy to do a lot of forced kind of retrospective analysis on, on looking back on all of these pavilions and seeing, oh, okay, well, in reference to Aravena's overall theme, or at least the representation of the theme as this interest in social issues and, and attempts to at least address and call for architects to address these social issues. Okay, now that's just the lens that we're going to see all these pavilions through, which isn't necessarily wrong. Can you tell me a little bit about kind of like what the pavilions that would have been explicitly addressing Aravena's theme, um, what were some of those that stood out to you? So I think that the the Danish pavilion was an, a direct response to uh, the call in a strange way. They kind of found the call a little bit confusing to them, I, I think. They are a welfare state. They've been doing what they consider to be the equivalence of architecture and social interest projects probably always. So they, they are, were a little bit baffled by the insistence that there was something unique about this this position. And so they put forward a very strong position about humanism and how all of these things do conflate into a single position, that design and community concerns actually are one and the same and that they can be answered together. And they put together a three-part exhibition, one that was focused on projects in the country in the past 10 years, and another part that was sort of retrospective for Jan Gould's 80th birthday. 
And then the final was a book publication that allowed you to take time with the material. That sounds like, and I I remember you addressing this in your write-up as well specifically, that it is somewhat hilarious that when a proposal like that is given out from an architect whose practice is based in Chile and has Mm -hmm. a very specific context in which it's trying to operate in and trying to affect change in, and when you try to apply the concerns directly from that in a completely different national context, such as the welfare state of Denmark, you do get these kind of head scratches yep. of like, well, we've been doing this all along. Why would we curate an exhibition to focus on it? So I think that's it's it's really fascinating to see things kind of made more explicit by the by chopping it up into different national pavilions. And I think that if you so in my introduction, I failed to mention that you are also an architect or a designer with Chu and Gooding uh, based in Los Angeles and. So from your perspective as a reporter and from someone attending this gigantic event, you have a little bit more, say, insider knowledge or at least insider perspective on how these kinds of topics are discussed in the architecture profession and, and generally how they're actually possible or not <laughs> to actually be realized <laughs> as an architect. But for, you know, the casual observer, like the casual design enthusiast wandering past the Danish pavilion, they might not have that same type of kind of like, okay, well, obviously this would have happened anyway. Right. I was wondering, can you talk a little bit about what it was like attending as um, an architect and being aware of that fact, maybe and also being surrounded by a bunch of other Italian tourists who might not have had any type of actual (laughs) architectural um, expertise while going into this giant event? I don't know how many um, actual like Italian tourists showed up. It was a large quantity of of architects, I think. By Saturday, you could see some of the tourists trickling in, but I think even so, they were within the discipline. But I think that I come in with a couple of different perspectives, and one of them just comes from being based in Los Angeles. And I know that the conversations around this topic here are very different, again, than, say, if we're discussing the same thing in Europe or Latin America or Asia. And I think that that was the the element of being there that was the most kind of profound to me was how everyone read the word front or read the word social in very different ways or even read the word like design and architecture and the fact that we can have all of these sort of pluralist versions of this was really quite beautiful to me especially like I said, coming from Los Angeles, where a lot of the concerns are fairly, what's the word, binary, I suppose. Like you're either doing social design or you're doing kind of design design, formal design. And I've always found that dichotomy fairly false. So it was it was good to see the the mix up and the misinterpretations taking place. So do you feel like other, do you feel like that binary separation is is uh, more distinctly something we do in the U.S. or in the West and that it's not such a, I mean, you're saying that it doesn't really exist anyway, but, and I agree with you, but do we just in the West or in the United States tend to want to categorize things that way and say, oh, well, this can't be about expressive form making if it is also about a social agenda or did other countries seem better able to deal with that? you know, that it's just implicit. Yeah, I do think that it is a specifically U.S. concern. I mean, I I say that with like some some doubt. I would say that talking to um, friends in London before attending the, the Biennale, the interest there has radically shifted more towards sort of urban design, which involves a lot of the more community or social concerns. And right. there's a movement within a lot of the European countries to to do that. And by doing that, 
some of the more material, physical aspects of architecture seem to be getting left behind. But I would say that in terms of it being an argument or like a sort of conflict or concern, it's primarily U.S.-based. I thought it was kind of funny that, or at least interesting, that we would have a problem with binary issues. We can't even get our head around gender fluidity. So, I mean, <laughs> right, right. So, so the idea that we would have, we wouldn't have anything but a problem with uh, the binary right. or being. So this is structured and curated by Arvena with a cent- kind of a, a loosely guided theme. So when you're there, does it strike you as being kind of strange to see? And if, if I correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I seem to recall that Zaha Hadid's office has, has worked there as well. Correct. Yes. How, how does, how does, I mean, how, when you're an architect and, and you see other architects walking around, how does that work strike you when you're moving with this very kind of, we know Arvena, we know about his Pritzker, we know kind of where he is in his head about design and uh, social issues. And then we have this very much of not a social practice, very much against his efforts in, in, in most ways. And how does that that strike you and how did it strike people there? Did you get a sense of that? Um, I, me, for me, again, like I am a pluralist. I want to see a place for all of these things. I think it's incredibly beautiful that you can have a Zaha retrospective at the same time as you're having a show about kind of activist practice in say Mexico. So I, th- I think all of these things are perfectly valid and make the profession that much more compelling in terms of how others are acting on the ground. We still get a lot of kickback about the sort of social do-gooderism and the overly earnest approach to, to the Biennale. And I think a lot of those are valid. I think that there are some inherent problems in, in these calls, and I am aware of them. But again, like my interest is in having many, many conversations. So I think that that's actually um, okay in some ways. Yeah, I, I agree that it's an interesting proposition to position her work because it would be hard to criticize it given her passing. But on some level, I kind of wonder, you know, it's a good discussion if you could have it, if you could have the real discussion, uh, the honest discussion about her work and the social practice and how it doesn't conform to that. And at the same time, I'm left with wondering, is it, a, it strikes me as a, a little bit, when I think about it and I consider it, there's a little bit slightly tone deaf. I mean, I, I am all for plurality as well, but if it's plurality for the sake of, because what this strikes me as, and, and this is me getting on my soapbox a little, sure. this event strikes me more as a, a as an art fair for architects. And I'm not sure if you, if you present, if you propose or if your proposition is to create an event around a certain theme, then putting someone in there seems either gratuitous or it's tone deaf. And because the real discussion can't happen because the actors aren't available to have that discussion. There isn't really, unless I'm wrong and I don't see Patrick on his soapbox lately illuminating us with his um, why neoliberalism sucks and, and libertarianism is great and how it's seen through this lens. So I, that's why I, I, I Totally agree with you about the pluralism. I just wonder out loud, and it's kind of a broader, hopefully a discussion for everybody, is that what is the purpose of events like this? Yeah, no, I I think it's definitely um, an architect's playground. I mean, it's an isolated island. (laughs) It's it's hard to get to. Um, It's a strange, like version of pulling all of these like single types of people from around the world and sticking them in one place where they can't get off. And you're not going to be attracting that many other people to this place. So it's it's definitely a strange environment, no question. But (laughs) and I I see what you're I see what you're 
saying, but again, like maybe it actually kind of helps to reinforce the the polemic in a sense of having that there. Like the fact that there is that incongruous component makes you look at all of it in a in a different way. I don't know. Well, no, and, and and I think you point out something very good. And I'm sorry to kind of like go on here a little bit because one of the things that um, we asked in the earlier podcast of Patrick is where he saw the firm going forward. Now that he's he's essentially performing all of the roles, whereas before they he was the the intellectual component, writing and doing all and kind of academic, you know, on on the campuses. But Zaha was more of the face of the firm and really kind of the the person you wanted to meet in terms of selling the project or you know getting that project and now it's it's i want it's i don't see any modulation it's kind of seems like you know i'm positioning her here and it's a retrospective just like you said it's a retrospective it's not it's not in dialogue and it's kind of like i'm like okay this is his first this is the first major step out into the architecture world after her passing and her work is kind of situated in this place and and it's re- received as more of a retrospective kind of a more it's funny i, I would almost think of a memorial a, a memoriam to her and and not really i'm just kind of left behind. why is that there there's a whole lot of other architects out there that would get that I think it's an interesting presence in the Biennale, if not just for the fact that it's from ZHA, but for the fact of how the exhibit is actually put together. And and, um, Andrea, one of the things that we were talking about when before you went to Venice and what kind of coverage you wanted to focus on is you were particularly interested in architectural curation and how the exhibits would be designed to kind of put forth whatever idea or thesis they were concerned with. And from what I've seen so far, and like, you know, this is taken from the perspective of an overseas <laughs> perspective, yeah. but the fact that the actual exhibitions are designed so drastically different, say you have, which is not special, but in this case, you have this kind of basic breakdown between strictly formal presentations. Um, what comes to mind is like the U.S. pavilions, the architectural imagination that has models and plans and like actual structures that are being speculative, that are speculative, but being proposed. And then you have other perhaps more performative pavilions, such as uh, Australia's The Pool, which is mm-hmm. literally a pool. So there's a vast variety, but they kind of do break down in those two major ways, that there are ones that are more performative and engaging or even perhaps explicitly interactive. And then the ones that are more traditional, can, like you said, art fair for architects of like, here's an exhibition, here is our, pr- our products, our architectural products, please critique them as you will. And I think that actually might speak to the whole variety and the pluralism that we're trying to get at is that some will make a proposal for the social end as being a project, as being business as usual, but business as usual done better. And others will be like, we have no idea what we're doing. We're truly trying to struggle with these problems, but we're going to try to approach it from a completely different way. And I think that's where you got some really interesting uh, work actually being presented. Well, in Christopher Hawthorne's recent piece, he was commenting on the disjunctures across primarily the central pavilions, but you could apply it to the entire Biennale and calling it a kind of curatorial problem and that um, Aravena was too inclusive. But again, and I've never been to a Biennale before, so it's actually hard for me to contextualize it, but I just found it profound to see all of these totally different approaches. And I think it does open up a whole series of pretty interesting questions that I hope go wider than, than, than just that one location. You know, I don't, I'm admitting my own ignorance here. I don't know much about really the history of the architecture Biennale. I have been to the art Biennale. Five years ago, I went to the, the Venice Biennale of Art. And I, you know, to me, the the 
art Biennale was kind of just a wonderland. It was just a wonderland of interesting things. And there there didn't seem to be, I think in the architecture, we tend to be so much more serious. Yep. You know, I kind of wonder if we don't need a, an, uh, and Ken, going back to your question about really, what is the purpose of these things, these events? You know, would an interesting Biennale be one that was just making cool shit? <laughs> you know, making cool architecture inflected shit and putting it out there rather than trying to make it this huge statement that is necessarily going to collect something, pieces in that don't fit and then trying to force them in. I've never been to an architecture biennale, so I don't know really how the crowd is different or not. But my sense at the art when I went to was that that it was, uh, yeah, it's more about sort of each country or institution, you know, flexing their muscles a little and saying, hey, look what we can do. Isn't this cool? Did you get that sense the first days of the press preview wandering around that people were really just looking for what's the thing that's going to grab my eye? Or as we architects tend to be, was it more about looking for the serious content? Well, the main sense that I got when I first arrived was that um, everyone was staring at a giant banquet that they'd been told that they had an hour to finish and they had to finish all of it. (laughs) So they were all just like (laughs) running around trying to figure out like how how to take all of this in. And basically all of the days that I was there was a marathon of running from one location to the other. Yeah. It is a sort of wonderland. Um, there's no question about that. And it's also just, um, I, I don't know, it's like, it's not like anything I'd ever been part of before. Massive. Do you have, Andrea, do you have any kind of general thoughts on what you think the purpose of a Biennale like this or like other ones is or should be? I mean, just as a very general conversation? Yeah, I mean, it's a very general conversation, which is how I went into this is almost all of the kind of arts have their culminating moment. You have the Oscars, you have Cannes Film Festival, you have these things that Mm. sort of are the mile markers for your discipline. And the world looks to those things. And I'm not Mm -hmm. sure how much the world is looking to the Venice architecture being Holly, but if they're going to look anywhere, this is going to be the place that they're going to do it. And perhaps it's just a question Mm. of getting architecture into the public consciousness more. But I, I think that I wouldn't want to also communicate to the public that architecture is any one thing either, getting back to that idea of like just making cool shit. Like I I think that the idea of looking at this with all of its multiple readings is the thing that we would want the world to know about architecture. Right. Andrea, I wanted to ask about your perception of Aravena's own work, whether you kind of think of his work differently now after seeing the Biennale. Hmm. I hadn't really thought about that one. I don't mean to catch you off guard, but I think it's just interesting that like we put so much and you're talking about, you know, what what is this actually for? How important is this really other than having it, of course, be like this heavy industry perspective point where everyone is constantly referring to and looking at. But in the overall spectrum of things, Aravana is coming to it as being here's an opportunity to use that cultural capital and that venue and that moment in the profession to supposedly leverage it for social welfare ends or, or towards directing architects towards those ends. But based on what we've just said, it also kind of sounds like an impossible switch, right? Like you can't go into it and then just switch it into something suddenly socially relevant. But of course, that's also how we're regarding, that's how we're regarding his work and how we're evaluating his work is built on that level of social engagement and, and um, social issues. So whether or not his attempts at curation and his, his attempts at presenting those ideas in this context can also reflect back on his own profession as something that I think at least in how we identify architects and how we think of the role of the architect is going to have like interesting repercussions down the way. 
Yeah. I mean, I hope that what this does actually is expand the definition of what we consider socially relevant, because I, again, I would argue that the formal is socially relevant. We just have to to reframe the way that we're appreciating these things. And I, I don't know if, I don't know how much he's able to take away from this. I'm sure he's still processing too, because there's a ton of stuff going on, but the it's a it, yeah it's a funny situation i used to work with teddy cruz on a lot of the international border issues and we were always looking to aravena's work even early in those days as a kind of exemplar of going in and doing architecture that had some sort of community significance and i kind of came in with that sort of prior knowledge of him so i was interested to see how it moves from a very local context into this much more global setting. And my initial sort of reaction is that it's not a totally comfortable fit. But again, like, I'm just pleased to see that all of these questions are getting pulled out of the of the ether and that there's just all of these things going on that possibly lead to new material, new, new ways of thinking. You know, I like the way you framed it as the as the Oscars for architects. I mean, it really kind of it does put that in perspective. I mean, it, it is a showcase of the work. And the only real takeaway from get for instance, um, from the Oscars this year was demonstrating how far that industry has to go in terms of gender equity, racial equity. And, you know, you could start to see that it it pushed enough it pushed enough on people's button, it pushed enough people's buttons that change actually happened because of the controversy around the Oscars and even during the Oscars, some of the things that were were going on, it really kind of put a light on issues. So perhaps, I mean, the only thing if I if a publication comes out of this, it serves a few interests, but generally speaking, you know, Art doesn't really, I think at this kind of level, it doesn't really affect too much change. I mean, it, it, on, on, on this kind of public scale, it doesn't really have a tremendous impact. Not that I'm being overly pessimistic. I just don't, I think it's more a description of like how resistant our culture and, and society and the culture at large is to kind of people pontificating heavily. So if it's, if it kind of, if it can kind of bring issues to, to the forefront, it would be great. It would be great if people actually went to this who weren't architects. And I don't know what that, how that happens and what mechanism makes people think that way. I mean, they visit our buildings. They go to specific places because of the building. They make pilgrimages to Bilbao and they go to these buildings. So and maybe it's, maybe it's uh, maybe a part of what, what you said before, too. It's a place that nobody can get to and you have to be determined to get to it. And maybe that's part of the problem. <laughs> yeah, I will say, though, that... Um... By Saturday, uh, there were a large number of what I'll just call Italian youth <laughs> present on the site. <laughs> and they probably are all like architecture and design students, but there was something really refreshing about having them present because it did feel like they're being educated in a different way, perhaps. So hopefully some of that is filtering into at least a, a, a small culture. <laughs> I heard there were more architects in uh, Italy than there were in America. I think I read that somewhere. But I'm yes. not... Yeah, there's a huge amount relative to population, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> so let me ask Andrea one silly question, then I have a more serious one. And th when I was there for the, the press opening for the Art Biennale, the big deal was these tote bags that everyone <laughs> gave out tote bags and you ran around collecting the tote bags from all the different pavilions. Did that? Is that the same thing at the architecture one? Oh, yes. Dozens. <laughs> dozens. <and> dozens. <laughs> dozens. Really? <laughs> <laughs> so seriously, did you did you like go around and gather up the cool ones and people would trade and everything? It, it was definitely a thing. I only came back with one simply because I only had one carry 
on suitcase, but um, <laughs> it was definitely a thing. <laughs> the tote bag thing, exactly. So I just wanted to point out that that um, in your very first, I think your very first dispatch from the Biennale, which is on our Connect and is called Dispatch from the Venice Biennale, a call for architects to give a damn. I thought it was nice that the very first comment from one of our regular commenters, LIMX, basically says, you know, the truth is most architects really do give a damn. Yep. It's just maybe not being framed by the media as if we do, because for the media, it's so much more fun to focus on the stars. And I think even within our our own architectural media discourse, people love to talk about Patrick Schumacher is being all grumpy about the Biennale, and that's a more fun conversation <laughs> to cover. But, uh, you know, I think ultimately, yes. As our commenter said on the site, most architects really do give a damn yep. about these kinds of issues. We all do. Absolutely. And that, that these kinds of events, as you say, the more people that are not architects can go to see them, hopefully we'll, we'll get that message across more. Yeah. And I also would point to the fact that there are many, many, many ways to give a damn. Patrick Schumacher gives mm-hmm. a damn. <laughs> like, no question. <laughs> yes. And it's, I, I always, I mean, like I have found the call fairly frustrating in that regard because it it does, it is fairly dismissive of all the ways of practicing the profession or within the discipline. And part of what I was alluding to or sort of skirting in that first piece was that he's asking for us to to, to give a damn, but I think that we haven't really inquired in terms of what it might mean to to care. So there are a lot of ways of caring. And that's the main thing that that I'd kind of like to walk away with. I think you can even bring it back to the your discussion of the Danish pavilion where they're just like, wait a minute. <laughs> this is yeah. both what we've been doing, but also we would never be so bold as to put ourselves out there as we are the ones giving a damn. We are just doing what is the common decent thing to do. And I think you see so much of that different idea of what it means to not only supposedly give a damn, but also what in your various social political context allows you to give a damn and and how you actually, to continue the metaphor to a ridiculous point, how you apply that damn elsewhere in the world, like how you actually can see it through is so drastically different for these different contexts that you can't ask the same thing of each person and have it be actually applied in the same way. So do we have any other final thoughts about the Biennale? I'm sure you're still resting up on just getting sleep and uh, <laughs> recuperating physically from the Venice sun. Yeah, I keep waking up at 3 a.m., <laughs> but <laughs> I'm getting there. I'm getting there. Dreaming of, of pavilions. I'm exactly. Sure. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. That's our show for this week. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, we are at Arc Sessions on Twitter, or you can email us through connect at arcconnect.com. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider rating us on iTunes. Our interviews-only podcast, One to One, is released every Monday. The upcoming episode features Jeff Manow discussing his newest book, A Burglar's Guide to the City. Until next week, thanks again for listening.